NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. 20 years ago this week, the U.S. invaded Iraq. I was really, really surprised, shocked, when my neighbor knocked at my door and said, the Americans are here, and they were down in my street. We talked to two Iraqis about the conflict and its legacy. And T-Mobile is buying low-cost cell phone company Mint Mobile. Find out what that means for consumers. Plus, did you know that pinball machines used to be illegal in major cities? A new movie tells the story. And an effort to protect a new kind of child star. It's Sunday, March 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Former Vice President Mike Pence says the potential prosecution of former President Donald Trump would be, in his words, politically charged. NPR's Dave Mistich reports on Pence's comments after Trump claimed yesterday without evidence that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday. Mike Pence has recently stepped up criticism of Trump's role in the January 6th riots. But when it comes to a possible indictment related to hush payments to porn actress Stormy Daniels ahead of the 2016 election, Pence has come to his former boss's defense. The idea of indicting a former president of the United States is deeply troubling to me. Pence made the comments after a political event in Des Moines Saturday. He said people have a right to protest should Trump be indicted, but he also said they should remain peaceful. There can be no tolerance for the kind of violence that we saw on January 6th or throughout the summer of 2020. Pence is widely expected to launch a run for president later this year, and Trump is set to hold the first rally of his 2024 campaign later this month. Dave Mistich, NPR News. A lawyer for Trump says his social media post was based on media reports, and a spokesman says there has been no official contact with prosecutors in Manhattan. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made his first trip to the occupied Ukrainian region of Donetsk since Moscow's invasion last year. A day after being indicted for war crimes by the International Criminal Court, Putin traveled to Crimea and visited the city of Mariupol. NPR's Charles Maine says more from Moscow. This trip seemed like a stage-managed event for Putin to highlight Russian efforts to rebuild Mariupol, which of course uh, was destroyed by Russian forces in the battle for control of the city last year. You know, it also seemed a little bit of a response uh, to President Biden's trip to Kiev a month ago, uh, given that this was Putin's first trip to these newly occupied and, in theory, newly annexed territories since the start of the war. Leaders of Kosovo and Serbia have agreed to work toward ending the tense situation between them. That's threatened to break out into violence in recent months. Terry Schultz reports a European Union broker talks have made uh, normalizing ties a prerequisite for joining the bloc, which both countries want to do. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Burrell welcomed the agreement to implement parts of his proposal, which call for the two sides to accept each other's official documents and symbols and to maintain good neighborly relations. This is not just about Kosovo and Serbia. It's about the stability, the security, the prosperity of the whole region. The agreement does not explicitly call for Serbia to recognize Kosovo's sovereignty, which Belgrade has refused to do since Pristina's 2008 declaration of independence. But if further talks succeed in the deal being implemented, it would prevent Serbia from blocking Kosovo's attempts to gain a seat in the United Nations and other international organizations. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
A South Boston tradition continues this hour. Political leaders from Boston and around Massachusetts are gathering for the annual St. Patrick's Day breakfast, featuring songs, jokes, and joke attempts. Serving as host, State Senator Nick Collins. It's going to be majority female speakers at the DS for the first time, and so I think we'll, uh, we're going to see some change up there. The event includes appearances by Governor Maura Healey, Attorney General Andrea Campbell, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and Senator Elizabeth Warren. The MBTA is asking riders to budget extra travel time today. That's largely because speed restrictions are still in place on parts of the red, orange, and blue lines and on the entire green line. With the St. Patrick's Day Parade taking place this afternoon in South Boston, trains may skip the Broadway T-stop because of overcrowding. Free shuttles will be running between South Station and South Boston from 10.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. today. Japanese pharmaceutical company Takeda is making a $6 billion bet on a drug acquired from Boston Biotech Nimbus Therapeutics. Bloomberg reports that Takeda believes the drug could cure several autoimmune diseases. Recently released trial data show impressive results in treating plaque psoriasis. Takeda is also testing the drug on conditions including lupus, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. The city of Boston unveiled a first-of-its-kind play shed in Dorchester this month. The Dorchester reporter says the shed is a pilot program aimed at getting people outside. Residents can borrow items for free from the shed, ranging from frisbees to balls for different sports to sleds to bubble wands to folding chairs. The shed is open daily at Fields Corner Park through the end of this month. It is 31 degrees in Boston on this last full day of winter. Breezy today, highs in the upper 30s. Breezy tonight, lows dropping to the mid-20s. And tomorrow, a sunny Monday and temperatures in the upper 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III. Only in theaters, March 24th. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. 20 years ago, President George W. Bush addressed the nation. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. The U.S.-led invasion of Iraq had begun, and explosions thundered across Baghdad. Iraqi Wraith Abdullah had remembers that time like this. You cower in your apartment, your bedroom, you hear the airplanes, you hear the screeching of missiles, and then you hear the bombs, and you wake up next day and you try to guess what was bombed in the city the night before. It was only the start of what would become a long national nightmare, says Rasha Alakidi. We were actually a lot safer when the bombs were dropping in 2003 than we were the few years after in the streets, which is such a dark irony. Both Rasha and Wraith would later become journalists, witnesses to the violence that tore their country apart. They joined us for a conversation to reflect all these years later on the war. 
I personally never thought that the regime would fall so quickly in two or three weeks. I thought it would be a prolonged war. I thought part of the South would be occupied. So I was really, really, you know, surprised, shocked when my neighbor knocked at my door and said, the Americans are here and they were down in my street. I mean, imagine you grow up being told that this is the enemy, this is the enemy. And then you go down to the street and you see these huge amphibious armored vehicles, kind of the Marines, and this group of Marines down in your street in your roundabout pointing their guns. You know, you stand there with the rest of the neighborhood watching them. You don't know what to do. I mean, what is going to happen now? Are we occupied? In Russia, what, what do you remember about the reaction to the overthrow of Saddam Hussein? It's very, very hard to explain how that felt, how that felt at the moment, how it still feels till this day to people who have not grown up in dictatorships where there's only one man ruling for decades. When someone lives in a, in a democracy or a, a country that allows elections where faces and leaders, they change every four years, every eight years, it's hard to explain how that one figure that your entire life revolved around, someone whose name was very much synonymous with the country itself. So there was no Iraq and Saddam. Saddam was Iraq, Iraq was Saddam. And that was very ingrained in our minds and in our conscience that when the regime collapsed, there was nothing after that. What's going to happen next is something that we were not even able to imagine. Saddam for us was, was everything. I mean, like he was on TV, he was on school notebooks, he was on the radio, his posters were in the street. When I was a child, we had the kind of a Japanese cartoon, Grindizer, and I thought Saddam, Grindizer, and God were manifestations of the same <laughs> entity. I mean, seriously, I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, it was easier to... He was to such a part of the, the ethos of the air, of everything, uh, of absolutely. life. Absolutely. Yeah. And he was more dangerous than God. I mean, you can tell jokes about God and Iraq and no one will do anything to you. Tell a joke about Saddam and you will disappear. And I think there was an hour in which Iraq was free, really free. I mean, that happened sometime between end of 8th of April, when suddenly all the security forces in Baghdad disappeared, and the 9th of April when the Americans arrived. And that moment when Baghdad hung between a dictator and occupation, I think that was the golden hour. And the country did fall into sectarian violence, and obviously the interaction with the U.S. troops, that changed. Tell me about that shift. Do you think that was inevitable? Look, I mean, people still talk today and still kind of pontificate, what if the Americans had done so and so? What if they did not disband the army and the Ba'ath Party and whatnot? I personally think it was inevitable for, for the chaos to ensue. I mean, people could not believe that this America had no plan for the day after the toppling. The lack of security allowed anyone who had any grievance with the Americans to flow into Iraq. So you had the jihadis coming from as far as Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, flooding into Iraq. You had the Iranians who had issues with the Americans planning to defeat the American adventure in Iraq rather than waiting for the Iranians to come. And then the ultimate failure of this adventure was sectarianism. You know, the American armies, the American invaders, the American politicians were fed this sectarian narrative on Iraq, which, you know, which kind of developed in the West by these exiled politicians. And they kind of portrayed Iraq as this 
on a binary issue, on a, on a Sunni versus Shia. Yes, Saddam was Sunni, but the regime was not a Sunni regime. The regime was not sectarian. The regime was Saddam clan-based. And by pushing all the Sunnis into a corner, by association, because Saddam was a Sunni, then you're all guilty You're by association. That was the spark of you know, the civil war that came later. Russia, I gather, or I understand that like many Iraqis, you received a death threat during this time. What happened? Can you tell me about that? At the time, I had just graduated from college and I was working on a contract at the city hall and I uh, got a phone call and it was someone who referred to themselves as a member of the Dawla. Dawla means state. But when they say a Dawla, we know exactly they mean the Islamic State. Now, this was 2007. We only heard the rest of the world heard of the Islamic State in, in 2014. And my, my accusation was that I was working with the government and that if I did not stop, if I did not cease to work for them, they would capture me, I would be beheaded, and they would record the beheading and make sure that everyone in the city saw it. I went to my supervisor and I, I told him what had happened. And there were two opinions. Uh, my supervisor said, okay, then you should quit because we have no way to protect you. Whereas the governor, when he heard... He said, no, you have to be brave and you have to fight back. You cannot let these terrorists defeat you. And at the time, this man, several members of his own family had been killed by, the, by these groups. He just didn't seem to care anymore. So I, I did. I had, to, I had to quit. And um, in the place that I worked, in the city hall, there were at least 10 people I know that were killed, that received death threats and were killed by these groups. Several of them were also women. So it was not like a prank call. It wasn't someone who was just making this vague threat for whatever reason. It was definitely very serious. And had I not taken those steps to remove myself from that place and from that work environment, I do believe I would not be here today. A decade after the U.S. invasion, Iraq saw the rise of the Islamic State militant group. And Wraith, you reported on this. As an Iraqi, there must have been times when you thought, like, Will this nightmare never end? And I know this is violence is a, has been a part of the life, but that has to do something to people to you survive, but you it manifests itself in some way, that trauma, right? You know, I was in Mosul in 2017 during the liberation of the city from the Islamic State, the ultimate manifestation of this kind of the whole jihad ideology. And I saw Iraqi security forces, soldiers and whatnot, and they were conducting the most horrible torture, uh, conducting it on people who were kind of denounced by, by, by the locals as, as members of the Islamic State. And I was asked one officer, it's like, why are you torturing him like this? I mean, don't you want to interrogate him? Do you want to get some information, anything? He says, I don't care. I don't want anything from him. It just became violence for the sake of violence. So, of course, trauma does not disappear from a society. Half, maybe not half, but a, a number of our parliamentarians were, you know, were gangsters, were, um, you know, members of militias who committed violence. They are sitting in the parliament. And if I can just add something quickly to that, they toppled Saddam, but in some way they admired him. They wanted to be him, maybe on a lower scale, on a smaller scale, but they were all mini Saddams. And that was a joke we would say. We, we, we used to have one crazy mass murderer. Now we have countless crazy mass murderers leading the country. But is that the legacy of the U.S. invasion of Iraq? The, the idea that Saddam Hussein's 
regime was toppled, but there's still that idea of how to get power was not. If we look at Iraq now, it's this kind of mutant state. It, it's a mixture of all these things. So we, ha- we have, in theory, democracy, and we have a constitution that guarantees personal freedom, I don't know, freedom of thought. And yet our penal code is the penal code from 1969, established by the Ba'athist regime. I, I call it a regime, I mean, I don't know, maybe the government in Iraq now is working hard to erode whatever personal freedoms that's the only thing that we got out of this whole American invasion. And that is being eroded. So what is the legacy of Iraq? It's a country of contradiction. It's a very wealthy country, yet a lot of its people, the majority of its people, live in poverty. It is a democracy, yet it's not. It is equipped by the Americans, yet its generals are aligned with Iran. It's a country of contradictions. And you both now live abroad. How do you see the future of Iraq What is the future for those who stay? I think for for me, how I see is that the only thing that can save Iraq is the generational shift that is happening. This new generation, the post-2003 generation, they, they lived in somewhat freedom, at least freedom of thought, that when I grew up, and I believe Reith too, we did not have that. We were not really allowed to think. They have access to the world. They've been exposed to different ideas and ideologies, and they have somewhat of a choice. And also immigration is not really an option anymore. So for this generation, they need the country to work. They have to. That was Rasha Alakidi, an editor at New Lines magazine, and Wraith Abdullahad, the author of the new book, A Stranger in Your Own City. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you for having us. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Here's a city space experience I am very much looking forward to. WBUR brings you an evening with an incredible musician and scholar on Thursday, April 13th. It's Grammy Award winning singer and songwriter Rhiannon Giddens, a MacArthur genius and a co-founder of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. And Into the Woods, coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at emersoncolonialtheater.com. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is not commenting on former President Donald Trump's social media posts this weekend, saying that he expects to be arrested on Tuesday. But a lawyer for Trump and a spokesman say there has been no communication from prosecutors and that Trump's claim is based on media reports. 
A Hispanic civil rights group is calling for an outside investigation into the death of a female soldier at Fort Hood in Texas. The Army says there are no signs of foul play. And in Minnesota, there are questions about transparency following the leak in November of radioactive waste from a nuclear power plant. State regulators did not inform the public until Thursday. Industry experts say there was never a public health threat. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash banking for business. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. It's been a tumultuous week in politics and banking. President Biden is calling on Congress to make it easier to punish bank executives. This follows the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The administration stepped in last weekend to backstop uninsured deposits at those two banks and prevent a broader run on deposits at other regional banks. Now it's looking at what else it can do. NPR White House correspondent Asma Hallett joins us now. Welcome to the program. Hey there, it's good to be with you. The president ended his week by saying to Congress that there needs to be more power to punish bank executives in these situations. So what, what is he trying to do? Well, in a nutshell, Biden wants tougher penalties on bank executives. You know, under the current law, regulators can claw back compensation and stock gains from executives, but only at the very largest banks. And, you know, keep in mind the two banks that failed recently, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature, those banks were midsize, so they would not qualify under the current rules. Biden wants Congress to lower the bar so that executives are held accountable when their behavior leads to a bank failure. And he also wants Congress to make it easier to ban these kinds of executives from working in the banking industry again. I mean, all of this is up to Congress, but we know Republicans control the House and bipartisan deals are hard to come by. So, so I mean, is this just kind of talking? Well, they are hard to come by. That is correct. But but I will say, I think it depends on what the bills look like. You know, targeting specific bank executives is very different than big regulatory reform. And certainly we are hearing from some Democrats who are calling for more regulation of small and regional banks. Uh, the rules on these banks were, in fact, loosened in 2018 when Congress passed a bill to repeal a portion of the Dodd-Frank Act. And I'm sure you recall that's the law that was passed as a result of the big bank failures in 2008-2009. And it is worth remembering that some Democrats in 2018 voted for this rollback. I think ultimately what happens next really depends on who is to blame for what went wrong. Uh, already we're hearing many Republicans argue that this looks like a supervision problem, not a regulation problem. And I've been speaking with some people inside the White House and outside who are familiar with the discussions. And it's clear that the administration is looking at what fixes it can make without Congress. Uh, Their main priority this week has been to calm the situation down, ensure, you know, that there aren't additional runs on other banks across the country. But the White House is expected to announce some more details on the regulatory front in the coming days. And it's likely that you'll see the administration drive hard on accountability in, in ensuring, you know, that regulators are stepping up their supervision that they're already allowed to do. 
So what could the president do on the regulatory front? You know, my understanding is the specifics are still being worked out. Uh, Keep in mind, the bank intervention last weekend transpired really quickly. Uh, A White House official told me that sometimes you're presented with very limited windows to make decisions with imperfect information. And that was even more so in this case, where they had to make a decision over the course of less than half a weekend about what to do with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature. And, you know, now they have more time to assess what went wrong. And going back to your regulation question, uh, one thing Biden could could do is call on the Fed to be more aggressive in bank supervision and oversight. You know, so for example, the Fed does have some discretion with how it deals with banks that have between 100 billion and 250 billion dollars in assets. The president could possibly call on the Fed to start treating those banks with 100 billion dollars more like the very large banks. And that's noteworthy because that financial range would have in fact included an institution the size of Silicon Valley Bank. The question of course Aisha is whether Biden will, in fact, call on the Fed to make any changes. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khaled, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. The Navajo Nation has been working through the courts for 20 years to get water from the Colorado River Basin. But water in the Southwest is precious, and some of the nearby states don't want to give up any of it. So far, the tribe's not gotten very far. Is still trying to establish that it even has the right to file a lawsuit over the water. That's at the heart of a hearing the U.S. Supreme Court will hold tomorrow. To understand what's at stake, we're joined by Heather Tanana of the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah. She's also a citizen of the Navajo Nation. Professor Tanana, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Why does the Navajo Nation say it has a right to water from the Colorado River or other sources? That claim really stems from federal policies of removing uh, tribes and their citizens westward and onto reservations. And when they established these reservations, that came with the promise that those lands would be permanent homelands for the tribe and their people. And I think everyone would agree, you can't have a homeland of any kind without water. It's so critical to daily life, economic growth, public health. And so that's where tribal rights to water stem from. So just to to be clear, what the Navajo Nation right now is trying to get the court to rule on is whether the federal government has the responsibility to make sure they have sufficient water. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's really including that planning phase as well, assessing and planning for the Navajo Nation's water needs. And the water needs of the tribe to make it a permanent homeland, right, that includes a lot of different things. There's domestic use, water that's needed for schools, for hospitals, and economic development. And so what the tribe is asking is that the government have to help them, that they have to help them assess that and identify all those different needs and then come up with a plan to get those various needs met. So a number of local water authorities, as well as the federal government, have tried to block the tribe from pursuing a lawsuit. Like, what is their argument about this? Yeah, there's a couple of different arguments being made. One is that tribes cannot bring a claim that the federal government violated a trust duty without pointing to a specific piece of law. The other argument that states are making 
is that the Ninth Circuit decision uh, finding that the federal government can assess and plan for Navajo Nation's needs out of the mainstream, that that interferes and infringes on the Supreme Court's authority, that it's really only the Supreme Court that can manage and make decisions about allocations from the lower uh, mainstream. The Biden administration pledged to strengthen relationships with tribal nations when it came into office. Does its opposition in this case feel like a backstep? For me, it's it's frustrating to see that the administration came out so strongly with all these proclamations. And it seems like when it comes down to trying to get something that's enforceable, that the government has to abide by, then they're backing off. You know, recognizing that it's very hard to predict what the Supreme Court will do. But I mean, with the, the makeup of the current Supreme Court, what do you think this case will hinge on as far as the decisions and, and, and what will you be looking out for? The Supreme Court makeup right now has the benefit of having Gorsuch on board. And he's someone who has experience with federal Indian law cases, who has shown that he really understands the history in this country of federal tribal state relationships. And that's unique, and we haven't had that really on the bench before. What I hope is that his knowledge will come through and help educate the other justices of the court, and they'll really put a high priority on federal responsibility. Again, the real issue is, is there this trust responsibility on behalf of the federal government? Because there isn't enough water. But that doesn't mean that the Navajo Nation does not have valid rights that should be enforced, that they should have the ability to develop their water and then play on the same level with every other stakeholder in the basin, contribute to marketing or leasing or other solutions for climate change. That's Heather Tanana, Stegner Fellow at the S.J. Quinney College of Law and Associate Faculty at the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. Professor Tanana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now over to France, which is home to the largest Russian Orthodox cemetery outside of Russia. The century-old necropolis has gotten caught up in Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Eleanor Beardsley reports. Birds sing among the birch and pine trees at the Russian Orthodox Cemetery in Saint-Geneviève-des-Bois. Just 30 minutes south of the hubbub of Paris, this peaceful historical place feels suspended in time. Orthodox crosses and cupolas adorn the graves of 12,000 people who fled their country to make new lives in France. Most of those buried here came in the first great wave of Russian immigrants, known as white Russians, fleeing the Bolshevik Revolution. France was the worldwide capital of uh, the white immigration. Paris was the worldwide capital. That's Nicolas Lopukin, head of the Russian Orthodox Graves Maintenance Committee. He shows me the grave of ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev, filmmaker Andrei Karkovsky, and the children and grandchildren of writer Leo Tolstoy. Lopukhin says the cemetery, which was founded in 1927, is well known in Russia. You know, when Russians are coming in France, Paris, they are visiting two things, Eiffel Tower and Cemetery in Saint-Geneviève-des-Bois. 
of course. In November 2000, the cemetery had a special visitor, newly elected President Vladimir Putin. Jean-Pierre Lamotte was there that day visiting a family grave in the cemetery's French section. Today, he's president of the association, Friends of the History of Saint-Geneviève-des-Bois. And I see a big Mercedes coming, and I saw Putin with his wife coming in the cemetery. They go to put flowers in some uh, grave. Uh, I was very surprised because uh, he was very shy, very shy. He don't speak, he don't talk, he don't ask any question. Now the chaos of Putin's war is disturbing the cemetery's tranquility. It began with an article in French daily Le Monde, which called the cemetery's future uncertain due to the war. In France, land for a gravesite is rented from the local government in what's known as a concession. When a concession expires and the grave is abandoned, the government can take back the plot, remove the remains, and bury someone else there. Le Monde hinted at the possible repossession of tombs by the French state. Le Pouquin, switching to French, says the newspaper ignited a firestorm in Russia. There has been hysteria in the Russian media because the notion of a cemetery concession does not exist in Russia. They don't understand it. Since 2008, the Russian government had been paying to renew the dozens of concessions that expire here every year. But with the Ukraine war and Western financial sanctions against the Kremlin, that arrangement has been suspended. They have concluded that there is Russophobia sweeping France. They even spoke of the tombs of Nureyev and Nobel literature winner Ivan Bunin being raised by bulldozers. Le Pouquin says this cemetery is classified as a national monument so graves can't be disturbed. He says there is a real issue of graves with long-gone family falling into disrepair, but that has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. I meet 75-year-old Christian Payotin, worriedly looking for his mother's grave. She was a Russian immigré and died in 1979. He remembers strolling here with her as a boy. He became worried after seeing the article in Le Monde because he hasn't visited in a long while. She came from uh, Petrograd, the name of this city. Uh, was uh, Petrograd, and after uh, Petrograd, uh, Leningrad, and uh, today, uh, St. Petersburg. After the revolution, uh, Russian Revolution, there was uh, many, many problems, because my mother uh, was aristocrat, and uh, she had to uh, leave Russia. Payotin says his mother revered her homeland until family visited her for the first time in the 1960s. He tells me in French how she could no longer relate to them. The gulf between them was too huge, he says. She was now French and had become used to freedom and a very different way of looking at the world. His mother's grave is covered in weeds, but the tombstone is solid. Payotin says he's relieved to find out she has a concession for perpetuity. He says he will make sure her grave is now tended as well. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Saint-Geneviève-des-Bois. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News.
Keeping regional traditions alive for the next generation has been tricky as America's rural areas see populations decline. Some families in western Kansas hope events like youth rodeos will help. David Condos of the Kansas News Service reports. Mesa Headland is decked out in a brown western shirt with leather tassels dangling from leopard print shoulder patches. Well, it's that. She's only five years old, but this is far from her first rodeo. I went here since I was two. She's waiting for her favorite event, which involves untying a ribbon from a goat's tail with help from her trusty steed named Ott. He loves kids. That's the best special about him. And he's addicted to me. We can't spend a day without hanging out with each other. This is the Young Guns Extravaganza in Dodge City, Kansas. Okie doke, next to go is going to be Mindy Tuxhorn. So how do you turn kindergartners into wranglers? Little bitty saddles for little bitty kids. That's Melissa Vanderham. She started Young Guns eight years ago with a few other rodeo parents who wanted their kids to get more practice during the winter when other competitions shut down. They're pretty competitive little yes, six-year-olds. They are. They are. <laughs> she expected to get 50 kids the first year. 120 showed up. This year, it welcomes nearly 400 little cowpokes into the arena. Go, 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 go. In a region where farming and ranching go back generations, rodeo is sewn deep into the cultural fabric. But small town populations have been shrinking for decades as young people leave the rural western life for bigger cities. And parents like Vanderham hope that introducing kids to rodeo might spur them to fall in love with their hometown's cowboy culture. Then, maybe when those kids grow up, they'll want to get back in the saddle again and take on the family farmer ranch. I'm back in the saddle again. The sport of rodeo was born from real cowboy work. Ranch hands would try to one-up each other at the end of long cattle drives. Where the longhorn cattle feed on the lowly gypsum weed. But what started out as a pastime for tough guys on the range has become big business all over. Between the horses, the gear, the trucks, trailers, and travel, being a rodeo family today takes a lot of money. A good saddle could cost $2,000. But youth rodeo keeps growing. The number of 5th grade to 12th grade kids competing in Kansas jumped more than 15% in the past few years. Jean Theodori, a rural sociologist at Sam Houston State University in Texas, isn't surprised. He says it comes back to the idea that rural America is the last remnant of a bygone, simpler, better lifestyle. He calls it the rural mystique, and rodeo is a picture of that in its purest form. Whether it's real or not, in our minds, it represents that wholesome rural way of life. And we as a society, we yearn for that. And while city slickers might get anxious seeing a five-year-old ride a full-size horse, serious injuries in youth rodeo are relatively rare. Kids often wear safety helmets. And instead of clinging to a 1,500-pound bull, these kids are riding their own horses through a timed obstacle course, chasing goats or lassoing fake steer heads. <laughs> Back in the arena, nine-year-old Braylon Barrett climbs onto the back of her speckled gray horse named Jesse. What I love about him is She's been competing for five years, so she's been bucked off before. Dragged, too. But nothing that kept her out of the saddle. And that is where she wants to stay. I never want to quit rodeoing. I just want to teach my kids how to ride and train and feel it just like me. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Dodge City, Kansas. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Holiday celebrations continue today in Boston. The St. Patrick's Day Parade in South Boston kicks off at 1 o'clock. That starts at the Broadway MBTA station and takes route to Andrews Square. If you plan on joining the crowds of spectators, then keep in mind that authorities are encouraging you to use public transportation. The MBTA is providing free shuttle buses between South Station and South Boston from 10.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., Road closures and parking restrictions are in place today around the parade route. A St. Patrick's Day weekend breakfast tradition in Boston is underway. South Boston Congressman Stephen Lynch there leading the singing at a union hall in South Boston. Maura Healy is making her first appearance at the breakfast as governor. Among other politicians at the St. Patrick's Day breakfast event, Mayor Michelle Wu and Senator Elizabeth Warren. It is 31 degrees in Boston, a breezy Sunday on this last full day of winter. Highs today in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. As the U.S. marks 20 years since the Iraq War began, two Iraqis reflect on the conflict and its legacy. People could not believe that this America had no plan for the day after the toppling. We were actually a lot safer when the bombs were dropping in 2003 than we were the few years after in the streets. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. TikTok, YouTube, and Instagram are full of kids' videos. But they're not just cute home videos. Many are of mega viral kids, social media stars. Some have millions of followers and they review things like toys or movies, sometimes earning a lot of money. But unlike child actors, there are no real protections for these child influencers. Chris McCarty is trying to change that. They are the founder of Quit Clicking Kids. They got interested in trying to protect kid influencers after they learned about a mom who had gained a huge following sharing family videos on social media, especially about one of her kids who had behavioral issues. There were a lot of videos that were sharing some pretty personal information about this kid that then ended up online and shared to a wide viewership. So... There was a pretty clear um, just disregard for his privacy there. So once you heard about this story, you started looking into this issue? Yeah, I thought, well, social media is such a new thing. I wonder, like, she can't be the only person who's using her kids in this way to sort of generate clicks, generate interest in her, in her account. 
And it turned out that she was not the only person doing it. it. Not at all. And these kids have to be filmed a whole lot. And what are you trying to do about that? Quick Licking Kids is primarily an advocacy organization aimed at spreading awareness of this issue just because it is such a new industry. Largely that advocacy is focused on legislative involvement, right? So there's House Bill 1627 in Washington State, a recently um, Senate Bill 1782 in Illinois, um, and that Senate bill is currently um, in committee awaiting amendments. So still active and just waiting to see what amendments, if any, will be added to the bill. What are you trying to do with these bills? The bills specified that for accounts that are big enough to generate sufficient monetary compensation for the account, and then also accounts that consistently feature their children. What the bill says is, first, a percentage of the revenue generated from the video must be set aside for the children in escrow, so that like in a separate account for the child, and that um, once these children reach the age of majority, they can request any video featuring them as a child be deleted. This is something that happened in Hollywood where you had these child actors who would make all of this money and then their parents would spend all the money and the kids would end up broke. And so you had regulations and laws that were put into place so that parents couldn't spend up all their kids' money. Do you feel like a similar thing is happening on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram? Yeah, I, I would say that something similar is going on. And there's a hope that the parents do have their, their kids' best interests at heart. And they are saving that money for their children, you know, maybe maybe for college, maybe for whatever the children basically need once they reach 18. But there's no guarantee, right? And that, that's why we have laws. A lot of personal information does get shared online. And that can include anything from, you know, periods to mental and physical health issues, grades, anything and everything gets shared online. And I think there's sometimes a lapse in judgment where parents really need to be thinking about, would my kid be okay in five years or 10 years from now? Will they be okay that I shared this information about them online? Will this come back and hurt them later when they're applying to college? Will it come back and hurt them when they're applying for a job? That's Chris McCarty. They are the founder of Quit Clicking Kids. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Ever look up at the night sky and wish you could see more than the glare of street and traffic lights? International Dark Sky Week is an initiative around the new moon in April to publicize the effects of light pollution, which can pose problems even for those using professional tools. There's light pollution concerns that limit the science we can do, but this telescope's really great for measuring the relative brightnesses of relatively bright stars, and even in some cases, galaxies. Later today on All Things Considered, listen on your phone or computer, or just turn on the radio wherever you are. Here's something you probably didn't know. It used to be illegal to have a pinball machine in public spaces in many large cities in the country. In L.A., Chicago, and New York, where the band started in the 1940s. And it wasn't just a band. It was a public relations crusade. Major raids throughout the city, squads of police swarming into bowling alleys, bars, anywhere they could find them. 
and in what has to be one of the most heavy-handed metaphors in U.S. history, the city used the legs of the confiscated machines to make new police billy clubs. That's a clip from the feature film Pinball, The Man Who Saved the Game. It's a fictionalized story of Roger C. Sharp, who helped overturn New York City's ban in 1976. The movie was written and directed by brothers Austin and Meredith Bragg, and they join us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So I guess I have to start off with, I had never heard of this band. Pinball being banned was not something that was on my radar. So how did you first hear about this band and Roger Sharp? Austin and I have a Google Doc filled with embryonic story ideas, and this was one of them. We had come across a picture, famous in the pinball community, of Roger Sharp standing in front of New York City Council members, proving that it was a game of skill and not chance and helping prove that um, it should be legalized. That was our germ. And then we cold emailed Roger in February of 2020 and proceeded to talk to him for uh, many hours. And at the end of that conversation, I, I texted Austin and said, hey, I think this might be a feature. He had told us about all of the other things happening in his life surrounding the time that he helped legalize pinball. So Austin, why was pinball banned in all these places? Well, the first thing I think people should realize is that the the pinball games of the 30s were definitely not like the pinball games today. The earliest pin games were really just a plunger and then a series of nails pounded into a a plank of wood. And if you managed to catch it in a certain part, then you got points. So it became a cash-only business that was popular among kids and was obviously, you know, just going to steal their lunch money and lead them down a road to trouble. (laughs) So they had to ban it, of course. The way you tell the story in the movie, Roger Sharp discovers pinball at college in the Midwest And then he rediscovers it when he moves to New York and it sort of saves his life. And he begins to idolize the people who built and designed the games. I think we have a clip of this. And they built something that allowed all of us to understand that we have control over our lives. Whenever I start a game, I know that it's going to end, but it's the choices we make with the opportunities that we are given. That's what I love about pinball. So it sounds to him like pinball is more than a game. It's a life philosophy. Is that what you found in talking to the real Roger Sharp? And that's what you wanted to portray? Yeah, Roger 100% has that connection to the game. He sees it as a sort of way to to calm him, to, to focus, to get his energy back. He's sort of an ambassador for the game. Roger Sharp is sort of like the, the Santa Claus of the pinball world. Yeah, I'll just add if I can. When we were interviewing Roger and we talked to him cumulatively for days over Zoom while we were writing, he kept coming back to this idea that people think of him having saved pinball, but in his mind, pinball rescued him. It sort of helped center him in a way. It helped him feel like he, he was good at something. And how important feeling like you're, you're good at one thing will allow you to start taking risks in other places. The movie has more than one love story in it because there's a love story with pinball, but there's a love story with a woman who Roger falls in love with. Was that something you added to the movie because, you know, it's, it's great to have a love story? Or was that really a part of Roger's story? 
No, that was 100% part of Roger's story. Roger met Ellen, a single mom in New York. So if you just want to have, you know, a bit of fun, then we can just go our separate ways and you don't have to spend a dime. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't scare you off. No, no, I'm still here. Most everything in the movie is directly from what Roger told us. They're meeting in an elevator, playing with Ellen's son, Seth, at a bowling tournament together. And it was part of what drew us to this as a feature, right? That it wasn't just about this pinball story. There was more going on in his life that kind of paralleled a more universal theme. Yeah, I would just say we are not pinball people, so we did not come at this from... A, a deep love and appreciation of pinball. I think that's grown um, since making this, but uh, it was really everything else happening around Roger and the fact that there's this universal story we could tell about taking risks and the value of taking risks. I mean, love is the greatest risk, right? The biggest risk of them all. Mm -hmm. You know, you make it look like a documentary with the actor portraying an older Roger Sharp sitting in a chair and kind of narrating the story about his younger self. And then at times, the older character of Roger Sharp would break the fourth wall and kind of interrupt the story and say, uh, that's not how it was. No, no, stop, stop, stop. This is ridiculous. This is, this is a fantasy. Nobody does that. Come on, what, what are you doing? Why'd you decide to tell the story in that manner? I think so much of that was born out of the process uh, of writing it. We spent so much time talking to Roger and crafting the story from all of his real life events. There was sort of a natural push and pull between us as to, you know, okay, uh, can we Hollywood up this section a little bit? Or how close are we queuing to the truth here? And it became sort of a way in. I mean, in a lot of ways, this is obviously a movie about pinball, but it's obviously about other things as well. And uh, I think we sort of mirror that as the relationship grows in the film. The director is a sort of off-screen director pushing him to tell the pinball story while Roger is taking these side trips into his work life and his love life. And by the end, you know, what has become important uh, has flipped. What has happened to pinball since the 1970s? Where's pinball right now? You know, there are competition leagues and stuff like that. But do you feel like it has that widespread appeal that it may have had in the 1970s? Well, I will say, I think Meredith alluded earlier that we did not start this project as pinball people. But going through this project, we have found that there are pinball people everywhere. They yes. are among you. <laughs> And uh, once you tell them what's going on, they will tell you everything they know. It's a fantastic community. Super helpful, by the way. We got a lot of support from the community in terms of sourcing machines for the film. Um, it's a, you know, I think pinball is always in a, a, a state of flux. Uh, I think it's in a resurgence now, it seems to be. But you'd be surprised how many people have a machine in their basement that they don't talk about normally. <laughs> That's Austin and Meredith Bragg. They wrote and directed a new film called Pinball, The Man Who Saved the Game. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. In Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing criticism over his handling of allegations of Chinese meddling in the 2019 and 2021 elections there. The Chinese vehemently deny all accusations. Crispin Thorold has this report. 
Tonight, more questions for the Prime Minister about meddling by China in Canadian elections. Turn on a Canadian news bulletin in recent weeks. On this Friday night, new claims of foreign interference. And there's been no way to avoid the subject of China. A parliamentary committee continues to study allegations of Chinese interference. In Which Canada's has made for a difficult time for the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. I understand the extent to which Canadians have very real questions about this. It Trudeau's response was to appoint a special rapporteur to investigate claims of foreign electoral interference. Intelligence leaks to the media allege that Beijing favoured a liberal minority government at the 2021 elections. That was the result, and the Liberals are Justin Trudeau's party. And also that the Chinese actively supported campaigns against several Conservative MPs at the last two national elections. There were already tensions, which burst into the open last year when China's President Xi Jinping was caught on camera giving Justin Trudeau a very public dressing down at the G20. The accusation? That Canada had leaked information from private discussions. Diplomatic relations had improved when Justin Trudeau first came to power, but they disintegrated in 2018 when two Canadians were detained in China, in apparent retaliation for the Canadian arrest of an executive from the telecoms giant Huawei. Christian Xi is under a lot of pressure to shore up his power, to maintain his legitimacy, and at the same time to appear strong on the international front. Lynette Ong is Professor of Political Science at the Monk School at the University of Toronto. Right now, there's some sort of pressure on the government to appear strong on China. Well, that may make the government more popular, it wouldn't necessarily help to come up with effective strategy in dealing with China. And a long-term Canadian strategy may be what's needed, according to activist and author Chuck Kwan. China has a very long-range strategic plan to infiltrate our society, to manipulate people's opinion, as well as to make sure that Canada enacts some policies that might be favourable to China. China strongly denies wrongdoing. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau must be hoping that a visit by President Joe Biden to Canada next week will provide a distraction from the latest allegations. And while the public agenda does not mention China, it's a subject that neither leader can ignore. For NPR News, I'm Crispin Thorold in Toronto. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Have a great weekend. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like webcams and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staplesconnect.com. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. Join us at City Space Monday, March 27th. 
March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg discusses the five-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting and activist campaigns against gun violence. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It is 31 degrees in Boston, a breezy Sunday and highs today in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton with Summer Art Camp for Kids and Teens. Creativity, self-expression, and fun. Enroll now at newartcenter.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Russian President Vladimir Putin has made a surprise visit to Mariupol. Find out more. Also, former President Donald Trump is claiming that he will be arrested next week. We cut through the noise and get to the facts. Plus, sociologist Matthew Desmond challenges the way society views poverty in his new book. He says many poor people actually don't take all the aid that they could. The American poor are frankly terrible at being welfare dependent. I I wish they were better at it, in a way. And there's always the puzzle. It's Sunday, March 19th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Russian President Vladimir Putin made an unannounced visit to the occupied Ukrainian city Mariupol. He traveled there after visiting Crimea yesterday to mark the ninth anniversary of its annexation. In the nine years since the Russian takeover of Crimea, the sole Russian lawmaker to vote against the annexation has been working to convince others that Moscow was wrong then and wrong now. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Since casting the sole vote in Parliament against the annexation, Ilya Ponomarev has lived in Ukraine where he started a TV channel to try to get the truth to Russians. Speaking from his studio, he says peace will only come when Russia's military is defeated, Putin falls, and Ukraine gets back all its land, including Crimea. It's Ukrainian land and Ukrainians will liberate it and Ukrainians would be totally in their right to do so. It would be like, uh, I don't know, uh, somebody would occupy Florida, and I would say, oh, it's just a peninsula, you know, so, you know, just, just forget about it. Ponomarev says the West must stop being afraid of Vladimir Putin. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Slovyansk, Ukraine. France is bracing for another night of protests as thousands vent anger over the government's passing of an unpopular pension reform without a lower house vote. In Paris, Lisa Bryant reports the unrest comes ahead of an, uh, an, uh, an expected no-confidence vote in Parliament tomorrow. 
Across Paris and elsewhere in France, police have arrested dozens of people and fired tear gas to break up angry protests called for by local unions. In the capital, demonstrations are banned from the Champs-Élysées and the Place de la Concorde across from the National Assembly. In Nice, protesters attacked the office of the Conservative Republicans' party head who supports the pension reform. A poll by the popular Journal du Dimanche finds 7 in 10 French are unhappy with President Macron and his prime minister, who pushed through the raise in retirement age. The newspaper drew parallels with 1995 protests over a pension overhaul bid. The government was forced to withdraw. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Bryant in Paris. An earthquake has struck off the coast of Ecuador. It's killed at least 14 people and damaged buildings in several cities. A tremor also felt in northern Peru, as the BBC's Leonardo Rocha reports. Half of Ecuador's provinces felt the effects of the quake, which had a magnitude of 6.8 according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The southern province of El Oro was the worst affected. The emergency services said people there were still trapped inside collapsed houses. Videos posted online show residents removing rubble in the search for survivors. President Guillermo Lasso made an appeal for calm after visiting a hospital in the southern city of Machala. Ecuador has a history of devastating earthquakes. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Senator Elizabeth Warren is renewing her calls for a return to stronger banking regulations following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Appearing this morning on ABC's This Week, the Massachusetts Democrat says the giant banks are not required to follow the same rules that govern smaller financial institutions. Little community banks don't get this benefit. They got to run their shop every single day to make sure they are safe and sound. Their regulators bear down pretty hard on them. It's these giant multi-billion dollar banks. Warren says lawmakers cannot continue weakening regulations to favor bigger banks and then have the government jump in to rescue them when the banks get into trouble. Right now, Senator Warren is attending Boston's traditional St. Patrick's Day breakfast. Warren and a long list of other political heavyweights are taking a stab at performing stand-up comedy routines and roasting their colleagues. This is the first St. Patrick's Day breakfast that Maura Healy is attending as governor. Medical residents and fellows at Mass General Brigham are making progress on an effort to unionize. The Boston Globe reports the workers say they feel frustrated that their salaries have not kept up with inflation. If the campaign is successful, then the 2,500 residents and fellows at multiple hospitals would form one of the largest unions of its kind in the country. Organizers tell the Globe they hope to hold a vote to solidify the union before the end of the academic year in June. Boston has a new spelling champ. At the Boston annual Citywide Spelling Bee yesterday, 23 students competed, and 10-year-old Tenoshi Inomata of Alston emerged victorious. He will go on to the Scripps National Spelling Bee in Washington, D.C. The winning word? Ancho, a variety of chili pepper. A-N-C-H-O. It is 31 degrees in Boston, breezy today, highs in the upper 30s, lows in the mid-20s overnight and breezy. And then tomorrow for the first day of spring, a sunny Monday and highs in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thanks for being here with us. Russian President Vladimir Putin paid a surprise visit to Crimea on Saturday to mark the ninth anniversary of Russia's illegal annexation of the peninsula from Ukraine. Then today he was in the Russian-occupied city of Mariupol. The trips come after the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for Putin's arrest on war crimes charges. Joining us to talk about it all is NPR's Moscow correspondent Charles Maines. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So, Charles, was this trip really a surprise? The Kremlin marks the Crimea annexation anniversary, what Russians call reunification, every year. So was this really a surprise? Well, no, as you know, as they do this every year. But the fact that Putin was in Crimea, it wasn't shocking in and of itself. But the Kremlin didn't announce it in advance, uh, just as they didn't announce that Putin was traveling to this occupied city of Mariupol uh, today. And if the scenes on state TV are to be believed, uh, that seems to surprise local residents who just happened uh, to be standing outside their newly constructed apartment building when Putin and his security team wandered by. Uh, let's listen. So here you can uh, hear this small crowd uh, giddy from seeing the Russian leader. One elderly gentleman says to Putin, we've seen you on TV so many times. Uh, to which Putin replies, well, this time I've decided to meet you personally. Uh, and in fact, this trip seemed like a stage-managed event for Putin to highlight Russian efforts to rebuild Mariupol, which of course uh, was destroyed by Russian forces in the battle for control of the city last year. You know, it also seemed a little bit of a response uh, to President Biden's trip to Kiev a month ago, uh, given that this was Putin's first trip to these newly occupied and in theory newly annexed territories since the start of the war. And did Putin address the warrant for his arrest issued by the International Criminal Court? No, not a word. Uh, of course, Russia has dismissed the ICC charges, uh, those being that Putin and a member of his cabinet uh, oversaw the abduction and deportation of Ukrainian children into Russian families. Uh, they call it irrelevant. Uh, Russia, the Kremlin officials note, uh, like the U.S., is not a signatory of the International Court and therefore doesn't recognize its jurisdiction. The warrant, they say, is null and void. End of story. Uh, yet Putin pointedly visited a children's school during his trip to Crimea, which I suppose if you're looking for hints of defiance uh, seems to deliver. In another bit of news from that region, the U.N. announced Russia has agreed to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative, although it's not entirely clear for how long. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, just to back up, you know, this was a deal that was first brokered by the U.N. and Turkey in July, uh, ending a Russian military blockade of the Black Sea that had prevented Ukraine from exporting its massive grain stores to global markets. That caused a huge spike in food prices in much of the developing world. And Moscow had been threatening to exit the deal ahead of the Saturday deadline. You know, it complains the agreement frees up Ukrainian grain uh, while failing to ease restrictions on Russia's agricultural exports, mostly grain and fertilizer. You know, Russia says it wants to now see tangible progress on that front if the agreement's to continue past May. For now, they've signed on publicly for another 60 days, although the U.N. brokered deal is supposed to be twice that long. Uh, certainly, the U.N. is eager to keep it in place. Uh, they note the deal's already allowed more than 23 million tons of grain to reach global markets, and that's helped uh, lower food prices. Chinese President Xi Jinping is headed to Moscow this week for an official state visit. Uh, what can we expect there? Yeah, you know, Putin has eagerly sought President Xi's backing as relations with the West have soured over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and Xi's state visit, you know, his first since being reelected to a third term in office, carries real symbolism in a relationship that both sides declared has no limits. 
Yet China has also sought to present itself as neutral on the Ukraine issue. And Beijing says she will bring an objective and fair position that aims to promote peace. Unclear is how that squares with the Kremlin's insistence that its objectives in Ukraine can only achieve by military means. That's NPR's Moscow correspondent, Charles Maines. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We've been hearing about legal troubles surrounding former President Donald Trump for years now. He's the subject of several civil and criminal investigations on state and federal levels. And on Saturday, he said he's anticipating getting arrested this week. We have NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliason with us now. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Ayesha. Okay, so yesterday Trump said he's going to be arrested on Tuesday. He blamed some, quote, illegal leaks. But then his attorney kind of seemed to to walk it back a bit, saying Trump was basically just going on based off of uh, media reports. Is this a publicity stunt? What's going on here? Sure, it's definitely a publicity stunt. Donald Trump said he was going to be arrested Tuesday. Then his campaign said they have not been notified that he's going to be arrested Tuesday. Uh, his Lawyer also said, quote, we will follow the normal procedures, suggesting that he would just turn himself in if he was about to be indicted. But Trump's politics are all about grievance. Here he is speaking at the Conservative Political Action Conference earlier this month. From the beginning, we have been attacked by a sick and sinister opposition, the radical left communists, the bureaucrats, the fake news media, the big money special interests, the corrupt Democrat prosecutors, oh, they're after me for so many things. So that's the heart of his politics, portraying himself as being politically persecuted. He's the victim, and a lot of his supporters believe that he is. Well, he's calling on his supporters to protest what is, at this point, his hypothetical arrest, which could make for a volatile situation, right? That's right. But he's said this kind of thing before. He's repeatedly called on his supporters to fight, sometimes to be violent, asking them to, quote, beat the crap out of someone protesting at his rallies. Before January 6th, he said, be there, we'll be wild. On January 6th, he told them to go to the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell. So he often calls on his supporters to do this. In September, he gave an interview to The Hugh Hewitt Show when he was talking about the possibility of getting indicted over possessing classified documents. Here's what he said then. If it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. So he went on to say his supporters wouldn't sit still and accept how he's being treated. He clearly wants his supporters to be out in the streets. As we mentioned earlier, there's been a flurry of headlines over the years, over the various investigations into Trump, his family, his businesses. So remind us briefly about the investigation that he says will land him in jail or at least arrest it. Well, this particular investigation is in New York. It's around a payment to adult film star Stormy Daniels and whether that payment is a campaign finance violation. The question is, was the payment made to avoid the story about his affair with Stormy Daniels coming out before the election? And we should clarify that Trump does deny having an affair with Stormy Daniels. Yes, he does deny having an affair with Stormy Daniels. There are other investigations, as you mentioned, into Trump's handling of classified documents, into his efforts to stop, overturn the 2020 elections. But this one is about campaign finance law. 
if he does get arrested, how would that affect his presidential campaign? I mean, he's running for president. Would the Republican establishment stand behind him? Well, he, if he was arrested, he would be the first sitting or former president ever to face criminal charges. But I think it would probably just increase the split between Trump's base, which is much of the Republican Party base, and the Republican establishment. Uh, his own supporters think it might help him because he would be a martyr. Uh, his supporters would become even more energized. On the other hand, it could increase the desire of many of his supporters to move on from him. He's damaged goods, even if they feel he is being unfairly treated. And it also raises the other question, which is, uh, what would Trump do if he doesn't get the nomination? Would he decide to run as a third party? He certainly seems to be in a kind of burn-it-all-down mood. He's angry with the establishment for moving away from him. He actually issued a press release over the weekend listing the different reactions of other 2024 presidential hopefuls and whether they criticized the Manhattan DA. Pointedly, Ron DeSantis, he said, said nothing. That's NPR National Political Correspondent Mara Eliason. Thank you so much. Thank you. The nation's largest Latino civil rights organization is calling for an outside investigation into the death of a 21-year-old female soldier at Fort Hood in Texas. The Army says there are no signs of foul play surrounding the woman's death. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton has more from San Antonio. Private Ana Basaldua Ruiz was found dead last Monday. Family members told Telemundo News her death appeared to be a suicide. They said she had been the target of unwanted sexual advances by a superior at Fort Hood. Ana Luisa Tapia of the League of United Latin American Citizens spoke at a news conference on Friday. Lulek is equally concerned over the reports from her family that their daughter was the target of repeated sexual harassment. Lulek demands an immediate full and transparent investigation into these claims. This investigation needs to start now and must be by an outside authority. Earlier in the day, Fort Hood's senior commander, General Sean Bernabe, addressed reporters. At this point in the investigation, there are no indications of foul play. CID is not ruling anything out and will investigate the circumstances leading up to Ana's death fully and completely. The case of Private Basaldua Ruiz has some parallels with the 2020 death of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen. Guillen disappeared from Fort Hood after telling family she was being sexually harassed. Her body was found two and a half months later in a rural area 30 miles from the post. The soldier suspected in her killing took his own life shortly afterward. An independent review panel later found Fort Hood to be a permissive environment for sexual assault and sexual harassment and pointed out serious structural flaws in the Army's prevention program. The Guillen case triggered a national conversation about sexual violence in the military and legislation to change how it is handled. For NPR News, I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. And for anyone experiencing thoughts of self-harm, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline number is 988. listening to NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 1018. Join NPR All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro next Sunday, March 26th at City Space for a conversation about his new memoir and stories from his broadcast career. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. It is 32 degrees in Boston on this last full day of winter. Breezy today and highs in the upper 30s. Lows overnight in the mid-20s. Then tomorrow is sunny Monday and highs in the upper 40s. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. A lawyer for former President Donald Trump says his social media post saying he will be arrested Tuesday was based on media reports, and a spokesman says there has been no official contact with prosecutors in Manhattan, where a grand jury is investigating hush money payments. California Governor Gavin Newsom has announced a partnership with a generic drug manufacturer that he says is aimed at disrupting the marketplace for insulin. He says by next year, insulin in the state will cost just $30 per vial. And the defending champion has been knocked out of the NCAA men's college basketball tournament. Kansas lost to Arkansas this weekend, 72-71. to The Jayhawks are now the second top seed to be ousted. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River, where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields, Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's been a wild week for the banking industry. The main culprit, Silicon Valley Bank, which failed after customers pulled out billions of dollars in a modern-day bank run. But one of the most interesting parts of this story is how the bank got into trouble. Plot twist, the bank may have played it too safe. NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports. Risk. It is tricky. Try to avoid one set of risks, and you just end up exposing yourself to another. SBB was a very good bank until it wasn't. You know, almost overnight it failed. And the question is, you know, why did it fail? Mark Williams is a professor of finance at Boston University. He has also worked as a bank examiner for the Federal Reserve. He says the problem at Silicon Valley Bank really started with its wild success. Many of its tech company customers were raking in money during the early pandemic. Yeah, SBB was just flush. Its deposit base tripled between 2020 and really 2022. Billions and billions of dollars flowing in. Silicon Valley Bank took all of those billions and stowed them into what is supposed to be the safest investment around, U.S. government bonds. 
So bonds are like a little loan you give the government for three months, a year, 10 years, depending on which kind of bond you buy. And at the end of that time, the government will pay you back for that loan plus a little interest. And U.S. bonds are considered to be the safest investment on the planet. They are often called a riskless asset. The downside? Government bonds do not pay out a lot. Super safe, not super profitable. The culprit here were the long-term bonds. Alexis Leondis writes about the bond market for Bloomberg. She says longer-term bonds, like 10-year bonds, will typically pay out more in the end than a three-month or a one-year bond. Which makes sense, right? Because long-term bonds mean you agree to lend the government your money for years, and you get a bigger payout for that long wait. Basically what happened was SVB wanted a bigger payout, so they basically wanted to reach for longer-term bonds. I think because it felt like what it would get from shorter-term bonds was kind of a joke. So Silicon Valley Bank locked billions of dollars away into 10-year bonds, supposedly the safest investment on Earth. But there were risks it wasn't seeing. Risk number one, access. Those billions were now locked up for years. It would not be easy to get that money in an emergency. Risk number two, interest rates. So when interest rates started going up, the market value of Silicon Valley Bank's bonds went down because they had bought those bonds before interest rates started going up. So their bonds paid out less than the new bonds on the market, says Mark Williams. So you bought, unfortunately, in 2020 or 2021 when interest rates were almost zero. Which brings us to risk number three, really, really rich customers. So when rumors started up about the bank, customers panicked and started pulling their money out. And because they were so rich, that meant multi-million, even multi-billion dollar accounts cashing out. Suddenly, Silicon Valley Bank needed a lot of cash, fast. But remember, a lot of its money was locked up in these 10-year bonds, and it now had to try to sell those to get cash. And this is where the interest rate risk bit the bank. Trying to sell those secondhand low interest rate bonds was not easy, says Williams. Now the, the same investor in 2022 or 2023 could buy that same bond, and the yield would be about 20 times higher. So to encourage investors to even think about your old bond, you have to discount it. Discount as in fire sale. Silicon Valley Bank took huge losses, and as word of this got out, more investors panicked and pulled out their money. Mark Williams says this was a bank run on a scale the U.S. had not seen since the Great Depression. Single day last week, depositors knocked on the door and pulled $41 billion depositor dollars out. No bank, no matter how strong, could ever survive that sort of withdrawal, you know, run on the bank. The rest of Silicon Valley Bank depositors were bailed out. And Mark Williams says even though the bank made a bunch of very specific mistakes, investors are scared. They started yanking money out of smaller banks. Which means then that, you know, these smaller regionals are getting potentially destabilized. Where's the money going? Williams says a lot of it is getting deposited into big banks that customers see as more likely to get a bailout if troubles happen. And a lot of people are investing in U.S. government bonds. Demand has been spiking for the riskless asset. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. It's been 20 years since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. For those who were there, what memories stay with them? What shocked me actually was the lack of preparation. It's really hard to keep an open heart towards people who are trying to kill you. 
and I remember going to different houses, doing door-to-door checks, and literally they were handing me babies. It was the first time in my life I made a lie. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we hear from Americans and Iraqis about what they witnessed firsthand. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Why does a country as wealthy as the United States have so many living in poverty? The reasons are many. Predatory financial services, stagnant wages, rising housing costs. In a new book, sociologist Matthew Desmond argues there's another reason why poverty grows so persistently here. Because those who are better off benefit from it. The book is called Poverty by America, and Matthew Desmond joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how do the rest of us who are not in poverty benefit by keeping people poor? We consume cheap goods and services. We invest in companies that have a record of union busting and exploitation. We protect lavish tax breaks that accrue to the wealthiest Americans. Um, And that starves anti-poverty spending. And then we have the audacity to ask, how can we afford to drive down poverty in this country, even though the country does a lot more to subsidize affluence. There was a war on poverty that was declared some 50 years ago. Um, That was when the national poverty rate was around 19%. Today it's 11%. How are we at this moment measuring who's living in poverty? Poverty measurement is very complicated. It's very contested, Uh, but one way to understand poverty is just to look at grim indicators that track with deprivation. Are evictions up or down in the last 20 years? They're up 20%. Is homeless school children up or down? It's up. Is extreme poverty up or down? The number of Americans living on incredibly small incomes, that's also up. What about the number of Americans reporting no cash income and just getting by on food stamps? That has also increased in recent years. So we could definitely get into like the debates about how to count the poor. But I think that the bottom line is the things that make poverty so miserable and agonizing are up, are concerning, and should shame us in a nation with this many resources. You know, there's also a debate on how much federal aid goes to the poor. Because you do point out, like one thing that's surprising is the amount of federal aid to the poor has not decreased. Yet for the past several decades, the number of people living in poverty has remained stuck. You said in the book that it's helpful to think of the welfare system as one big leaky bucket. What do you mean by that? What's kind of amazing to me is how much money is allocated to the poor on paper, but doesn't reach them in practice. So if you look at uh, cash welfare, which is called the Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, or TANF, for every dollar that's budgeted to that program, only about 22 cents reaches a family in like dollars in hand. So like, why? Well, it's because that program is doled out by something called a block grant, which gives states a lot of discretion about how to spend their money, and they use that discretion. They use welfare funds to fund Christian summer camps, anti-abortion centers, marriage initiatives. Mississippi basically used it to like buy trucks, you know, and build university sports stadiums. And it's also important to realize that a lot of local families don't take advantage of the, the aid allocated to them. 
And this blew me away when researching the book. I mean, a lot of times we hear about welfare dependency, but if you look in the data, you realize that's not the problem at all. The problem is welfare avoidance. The fact that one in five elderly Americans who could benefit from food stamps don't take them. One in five low-income workers who could benefit from the earned income tax credit don't claim that credit. And if you add all that up, the money that's left on the table, you realize that every year, $140 billion, billion with a B, is not getting out to families that really need it. So the American poor are frankly terrible at being welfare dependent. I, I wish they were better at it in a way. But part of what happens when you have all of these debates about the poor is that there is this idea that if you help these people, and it depends on what those people look like, whether you feel like they deserve the help, but it's also kind of zero sum where people feel like, oh, I'm working hard at my job and I, I work so hard to pay these bills and then that person isn't working and then they get money and that's not fair. So like, how do you deal with that battle of public opinion where you have these groups really that are being pit against each other? Yeah, it gets us into the scarcity mindset, right? And a lot of the ways that the government has designed anti-poverty policies are frankly divisive, right? And they've pitted low-income families against moderate-income families, you know? And I think we should reject that scarcity mindset. This isn't the best we can do. We don't have to settle for this. One quick statistic, a recent study showed that if Americans in the top 1% of the income distribution just paid the taxes they owed, not paid more taxes or, you know, had a higher rate, just paid what they owed, stop evading what they owed. We as a nation would raise an additional $175 billion a year. Okay, that's almost enough to lift everyone out of poverty. I guess because you talk about, you want to make this an issue like climate change, right? Where people will take a stand and say, okay, I'm going to take public transportation more or I'm going to buy my goods with climate change in mind. But do you worry that even this, this anti-poverty or, or poverty abolitionist could also become in some ways virtue signaling, but it's not really dealing with the problem? Like, do you, do you worry that it could just become more lip service? I would... I would love to have that problem, honestly. <laughs> so you're like, we're not even there yet. Yeah. We're not even there. Yeah. If a lot of us decided, look, I'm, I'm really investing in these companies that treat their workers right. I'm going to show up at my, my zoning board meeting on Tuesday night, and I'm going to stand up and say, no, I, I want affordable housing in my community. And if I'm going to write my congressperson and say, what you're doing is too small, we have more resources, reach for something better. All this poverty around me is unacceptable. And if we did that to virtue signal, you know, I'm a, I could live with that for now. My biggest fear, actually, is that people read this book and they put it down and they just sigh and they feel despair instead of getting involved and taking some action. Well, that's the thing, because you offer a lot of kind of small and medium solutions in this book, but how do you not fall into despair when people will go, but that's very hard, we can't even raise the debt ceiling, you're talking about dealing with poverty and everybody's fighting over all these different things. How do you not fall into the despair of, I just feel like nothing can be done? So in the 1960s, Congress was a mess totally polarized. The Southern Democrats were aligned with Republicans to block progressive reform. 
And in that cauldron, major pieces of civil rights legislation were passed, and the war on poverty was birthed, and the Great Society was birthed. Those programs, they reduced poverty by half. How was that possible? Well, grassroots organizers, especially the civil rights movement and the labor movements, just put unrelenting pressure on federal policymakers. They forced their hand, and I am, I'm just so grateful that those movement leaders didn't descend into despair. I'm so grateful they didn't look at Congress and say, you know, maybe next time. They got to work, and I think we need to get to work. Mm. That's Matthew Desmond. He is a sociologist at Princeton University and author of the upcoming book, Poverty by America. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In Greek and Roman mythology, Venus is the goddess of love and beauty. But the planet Venus is, well, a hellscape. Think crushing pressures, a toxic atmosphere, surface temperatures hot enough to melt lead. The forces that shape the planet, which is in some way similar to our own, have largely remained a mystery. And now new research offers a new volcanic insight. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. Despite all its hostility, Venus, our nearest planetary neighbor, is pretty similar to Earth, so much so that University of Alaska Fairbanks planetary scientist Robert Herrick calls it our true sibling in the solar system. Aside from Earth, it's the only one that has sort of true mountain ranges and huge variety of volcanic features. Features like lava fields, canals carved by molten rock, and hundreds, if not thousands, of volcanoes. So it's clear that Venus is volcanically active, but it's not clear exactly how active. The time between eruptions could be months, years, or tens of thousands of years. Herrick set out to try to narrow down that time window by searching for evidence of recent volcanic activity. He pored over radar surface imagery collected by the Magellan spacecraft in the early 90s. It's a needle in a haystack search without any guarantee that there's a needle, right? He focused his search around the highest volcano on Venus, Mat Mons, named after the Egyptian goddess of truth and justice. And after a couple months of looking, he found something. So can you see a, you're looking at PowerPoint, hopefully? Herrick fires up a slide with two side-by-side black and white images taken eight months apart of the same spot on the north side of the volcano, each one some 15, 20 miles across. Herrick points out a pockmark, its event, the area where a volcano erupts, discharging its lava, ash, and rock. But the shape of that vent differs between the two images. The outline has changed and things actually gotten larger and looks shallower as well. That is, sometime during 1991, Herrick speculates the volcano erupted, forming a lava lake within the vent. Of course, I could have been very lucky and seen the only thing that happened in the last million years on Venus. But I think the reasonable interpretation suggests that Venus is relatively Earth-like in the frequency of volcanic eruptions. Around places like Hawaii and Iceland, 
Herrick and his colleague published their findings in the journal Science. They hope it'll help researchers understand how Venus has evolved geologically over the last four and a half billion years and where it might be headed. It is nice to have a visual confirmation of the volcanic activity on Venus, but given that this was something we had speculated, it's not shocking to have this paper come out. Clara Souza Silva is a quantum astrochemist at Bard College and wasn't involved in the research. Still, she says this confirmation helps us understand what to expect in Venus's atmosphere. A planet that has a lot of volcanic activity has access to these extreme pressures and temperatures below the surface that can produce molecules that are really unusual and otherwise really hard to make. NASA's currently got two missions to Venus in the works, missions that will now be informed by these new findings. We don't just think it's an active planet, we know it's an active planet right now. Herrick's working to develop an instrument for those upcoming missions to monitor volcanic activity on Venus. He's pretty confident now it'll see something once it's deployed. It just has to survive the infernal planet long enough to make its measurements. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. In South Boston this afternoon, the St. Patrick's Day Parade kicks off at 1 o'clock at the Broadway MBTA station and makes its way to Andrew Square. Road closures and parking restrictions are in effect. The T is providing free shuttle buses most of the day between South Station and South Boston. The traditional St. Patrick's Day breakfast is underway in South Boston. The event features a wide range of Massachusetts politicians at the mic trying out their comedic skills. Senate President Karen Spilka poked fun at former Republican Governor Charlie Baker. It seems like everybody is leaving public office these days to make a ton of money. Charlie has moved on to the NCAA. I'm guessing that's why he did not support the millionaire's tax. Baker's successor in the corner office, Maura Healy, is attending the breakfast for the first time as governor. It is 32 degrees in Boston, highs today in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Into the Woods. Coming to Boston direct from Broadway and with its Broadway stars to boot. Two weeks only, beginning March 21st. Tickets at EmersonColonialTheater.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Nagin Farsad told us about a new ice cream made with actual crickets. It's the perfect dessert for the person disappointed turtle sundaes didn't have real turtle. <laughs> I'm Karen Chi, filling in for Peter Sagal. This week, we'll have more sweet and or creepy stories. Plus, our special guest, Law & Order Sam Waterston, on the news quiz from NPR. Tonight at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people, and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us today is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good to talk to you, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So, Will, could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yeah, it was a tough one, despite the fact that there were a couple of alternative answers. I said, name two countries that have consonants that are nationalities of other countries. In each case, the consonants in the name of the country are the same consonants in the same order as those in the nationality of another country. I said, no extra consonants can appear in either name, and the letter Y isn't used. My intended answer was Ukraine and Korean. And the second one was Lebanon and Albanian. There are a a couple of other answers, not quite as elegant, but they work. Mauritania and Mauritian, as in the people from Mauritius. And Cameroon and Camoran, which are the people from Comoros. Okay. Well, I mean, it it seems like it was a little tricky for you guys because there were uh, only about 170 correct submissions. One of those was Jonathan Black of Brockport, New York. He is our puzzle winner. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? Oh, long times. I remember the the postcard days. Okay. So so you've been, and but have you ever won? Yeah, I played on the air before. Yeah, with with Will. Okay, so so you know, so you're not you're not new to this. You are true to this, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> not um, my first rodeo. Okay, and so so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? I I understand that you do some little puzzle making of your own. I I do write crossword puzzles. I've had a few published. None none by the puzzle master, but um, but he has. You know, he has the cream of the crop to to pick from, so, um, but I'll I'll keep trying. Well, keep sending them in. All right, so, Jonathan, I I don't even really need to ask, but I got to ask, are you ready to play the puzzle? I am ready. Okay, so take it away, Will. All right, Jonathan and Aisha, I'm going to give you two words starting with the letter B. You tell me another word starting with B that can follow my two to complete compound words or familiar two-word phrases. For example, if I said black and boom, you would say box, as in black box and boom box. Okay. Nice. Okay. Okay, number one, start really easy with three-letter answers. Busy and bumble. B. Busy B and bumblebee, right. Brown and book. Uh, Bag. Bag, brown bag and book bag, right. Now we're going into four-letter answers. Brass and broad. Broad. And the broad thing is a kind of internet connection. Oh. Oh, broadband. Broadband and a brass band is right. Basket, bowling. Ball? Uh huh. Baby, bada. Boom. That's it, bada boom. Now we're into five letter answers bulletin, boogie. Board. You got it. Bad, blue. Blue. Oh, is this a singer? Like Bad Bunny and Blue Bunny? Oh, no. I don't know. I like that. Blue. I like Bad Bunny. I don't know Blue Bunny. Blue Bunny? Isn't that a, um, ice cream? Ice cream, yeah. It's yeah. ice cream. Well, how about that? An alternative answer. I was going for Bad Blood and Blue Blood. Oh, yeah. But I will sense. take your answer. Try this one. Building and Butcher. Block. 
Right. Now we are on to six-letter answers, block and bronco. Block and bronco. And block is what you used to rent Dirt movies from. Buster. That's right. And your last one is seven letters, big and baby. Baby? Big? Uh, and let me ask you, do you have a younger sibling? I have an older brother. Uh-huh. Well, and what are you to him? Uh, brother. You are his baby brother and big brother. Big brother Michael. <laughs> it was deceptively simple. Yes. Oh, yeah. Cool. <laughs> but you did an awesome, awesome job. How do you feel? I feel great, yeah. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Jonathan, what member station do you listen to? WXXI in Rochester, New York. That is Jonathan Black of Brockport, New York. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Oh, my pleasure. All right, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, name two well-known commercial products in five letters whose names are anagrams of each other. One product is something you probably use in your bathroom. The second is more likely to be in your refrigerator. What products are these? So again, two popular products in five letters. Their names are anagrams of each other. One is something you probably use in your bathroom, and the other is more likely to be in your refrigerator. What products are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this upcoming week is Thursday, March 23rd at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. In Greece, protests over the country's deadliest train collision are in their third week. 57 people died when a passenger and cargo train collided at high speed. Outrage has galvanized Greeks of all ages and especially young people who see an opening for change in upcoming elections. From Athens, Lydia Emanalidou reports. 17-year-old Stella Duru would typically be in class on a weekday. But this Thursday morning, she's marching through downtown Athens with her high school classmates. Some are protesting for the first time. This is the first time I've seen everyone actually want to come out and do it because it's kind of dangerous to protest here in Athens. Dangerous because of police brutality. Painted on Duru's cheek in black marker is a phrase that has become a rallying cry since the train crash. Text me when you get there. Many people didn't actually get back to their homes safely which that's the most heartbreaking part of this whole situation. Duru knew one of the 57 people killed in last month's collision. As the students march, they chant, we will become the voice of the dead, and the young generation will not forgive you. Since the collision, massive protests, the biggest Greece has seen in more than a decade, have erupted across the country, and people of all ages and backgrounds are showing up. But the rail crash seems to have struck a particular chord with the country's young, because many of the victims and passengers on that train were students. 
It could have been me on that train, 20-year-old Alexia Athanasiou told Greek media the week of the accident in a video that's making the rounds on TikTok. She explained that she's taken that same evening train from Athens to Thessaloniki for a night out many times and then taken the first train back home in the morning. She said some of the blame should fall on the station master, who apparently failed to switch the train tracks leading to the high-speed collision. He's charged with negligent homicide. But she said we, Greeks, are also to blame for putting in power the same people again and again and again. Researcher Costas Gousis has been watching how those in their teens and 20s are responding to the tragedy. We're seeing the shaping of a new political generation in Greece. Gousis is with Eteron, a nonprofit that's been tracking the issues Gen Zers and young millennials care about. What really is really happening here with this huge movement, you could see that it is coming, that this is a generation that at some point will say this is enough. He says even before the train collision, many young Greeks were growing disillusioned. They staged big protests over a plan to place police on university campuses, plans to partially privatize Greek education, and in response to a wave of violence against women. More recently, young artists have been in the spotlight, protesting a recent government decree that they say downgrades performance arts degrees to the equivalent of a high school diploma and will affect their salaries, among other things. The country which is known for creating art is now killing it. Thomas is a 25-year-old drama student, and he's reading one of the banners hanging outside the National Theatre of Greece in downtown Athens. He asked us to only use his first name. He and dozens of other students and artists have been camping inside the theatre for more than a month. He says to him that feels more productive than going to the ballot later this year. I don't believe elections will change something in Greece, whatever party comes to power. They don't work like this in Greece. Historically, youth turnout in Greek elections has been low. This year, the youngest voters will be those born in 2006, voters who grew up as the country was in deep economic turmoil. Nick Malkoutsis is with Macropolis, a political and economic analysis website. He says the message the train disaster sent to young people is that Greece is an inhospitable place. I think a lot of those young people will look at that and really wonder if their future lies here or if there is any real possibility of things changing for the better. And that, that's, that's a really de- depressing thought, to be honest with you. At the protest in downtown Athens, 28-year-old Maria, an urban planner who only wanted us to use her first name, looks out into the crowd, a sea of thousands of people. I think there, there's hope. Finally, there's hope. Not only to change the government, but uh, our principles as a society. We've been through a lot, she says. We really need change. For NPR News, I'm Lydia Manulidou in Athens. Ryan, we are so happy to have you and the whole Mint team join the T-Mobile family. That's T-Mobile CEO Mike Sievert announcing T-Mobile's acquisition of Mint Mobile. And the Ryan he's talking to, of course, is Ryan Reynolds, part owner of Mint. The deal could cost T-Mobile as much as $1.35 billion. What could it cost you? Antonios Drosos is a managing partner at Rewheel, a mobile data strategy firm, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thanks for having me. T-Mobile says they'll continue to offer Mint's cheapest plan, which costs $15 a month, 
But does does that indicate to you that this merger may be a good thing for consumers, that they'll still have this ability to get these really, really affordable plans for those who need them? My personal assessment is that probably uh, T-Mobile is looking to rationalize the uh, you know pricing in the market by removing a competitor that uh, has lower prices than them. Back in 2020, when T-Mobile bought Sprint, there was a promise to keep Sprint's prices in place for three years. It's been about three years now. So, so what do we know? It is important to note that these promises, actually, they are not significant. And in practice, they don't really make a difference into the market. Because what is important to remember is that uh, mobile prices, both the monthly prices and as well the unit prices, meaning gigabytes, have been coming down. If Two network operators that they are merging are promising to keep prices flat. Well, that's not good enough, you know, because prices are falling anyway. So that's not actually uh, necessarily a benefit for the consumers. And to, to add to that, there is the many footprints, small print, and caveats and footnotes that usually offers comes with. And in the U.S., you have a lot. That no one ever reads that stuff, so. Well, but we do. because <laughs> You do. We do. We do because that's our job. But what I want to say about that, even, let's say, if T-Mobile were to retain the $15 per month, there's many other details. There's many other restrictions that they can impose, even though the monthly price is the same. For example, they could make the service to be a 3G service, while at the moment, I mean, mobile service comes as 5G, meaning the latest technology. So so Mint was already using T-Mobile's network. And in fact, uh, America really has three main cell phone companies, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile. And then you have a bunch of smaller companies that, that piggyback off of the physical network that these other companies have. Is that the optimal way to arrange a wireless telephone and data market? Well, you know, it is... A quite a typical way that markets are structured. If you look at uh, European and OECD uh, wireless markets, what you will see is that uh, two-thirds of them, or a bit less than two-thirds, they tend to have three network operators, that they have their own mobile network infrastructure, and uh, one-third tend to have four or more mobile network operators. It's clear to us from a price point of view, markets with at least four are more competitive. Prices are lower. Consumers are getting much more for their money. So how could you make it more competitive? Well, that's the problem that uh, the mobile industry, the wireless industry, is a market with uh, very high barriers of entry. You could not really uh, become a player with your own infrastructure because first you need to purchase spectrum and the actual frequencies. Secondly, to start building up your network, you have to build the physical infrastructure. And when we are talking about building physical infrastructure, we are talking about tens of thousands of mobile antennas. So, And going back to what you said about the T-Mobile Sprint merger, yes, the U.S. Department of Justice allowed that merger to go through with the remedy, the entrance of a new fourth mobile network operator, which was this. Dish, okay, so you're talking about DISH network, the satellite network. Yes. So this purchased uh, spectrum assets and as well some infrastructure assets. And this is in the process of building their own 5G network, probably looking to cover 20% of the U.S. population this year. And uh, potentially at some point in the future might become a viable fourth competitor to the three big ones in the U.S. That's Antonios Drosos of the firm Rewill. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. It's 32 degrees in Boston, breezy today and highs in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New Art Center in Newton, a community arts education space for all ages and all levels of ability. Register for summer camp and more at newartcenter.org. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. As the U.S. marks 20 years since the Iraq War began, two Iraqis reflect on the conflict and its legacy. People could not believe that this America had no plan for the day after the toppling. We were actually a lot safer when the bombs were dropping in 2003 than we were the few years after in the streets. Sunday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.